The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the standard in the rare coin grading industry. To learn more, visit www.pcgs.com. This week in the Coin Week podcast, we go in-depth to the Spanish coinage of Isabella II, the deposed regent of Spain during the mid-19th century, whose coinage is the subject of Patrick O'Connor's new book. Hi, Pat. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. Hello, Charles. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, congratulations on publishing your interesting and in-depth study of the coinage of Queen Isabella II. How long did uh, that project take you to see to fruition? Uh, it was about a five-year process for the book itself and the research. Um, of course, the, the, the foundation of that for many of us, as in my case, took decades just to get to the point where I, uh, I think I had a sufficient understanding to even delve into something like that. She lived a very interesting life, but ultimately had to cede power and leave Spain to live in exile. Queen Isabella II ruled at a very turbulent time in Spanish history. But beyond these issues, what was it that made you interested in her coinage? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it may be that way for many people when they begin to collect. They don't know what to collect. Um, of course, I, I actually collected U.S. coins by type for about 30 years. And uh, then some years ago, uh, you know, that, that pillar dollar that's in the front of the red book that everybody sees when they when they read through it uh, kind of drew me to other shores, if you will. Uh, so I got into those pillar dollars, the pieces of eight from Spain, and I picked up Gilboy's book on uh, columnarios and just the depth that he went into through that book, um, the many years it took him to develop that and put the great detail in his book really inspired me just to to look further, look outside of, of what was known. You know, the U.S. stuff is wonderful. There's great resources in the United States, of course, for that history. Um, but abroad, for many things, there's, there's not as much. Um, there are people that do study those coins of other countries, but the idea that I could see artistry, uh, history uh, of other countries on other coins um, was intriguing to me. So I, for a while, I dabbled and did that thing where you buy whatever you like, whatever you see that you like. And I lighted upon um, a gold coin of Isabel's, just a beautiful uh, laureate bust, um, straight bust design of the, the uh, gold hundred reales of Queen Isabel. And uh, so I, I just really piqued my interest in terms of its artistry. Um, and then I was curious about the history of it and, you know, when, why they made them, when they made them. And there really wasn't any answers. I mean, there were some book, books out there uh, to this day. There are many Spanish catalogs. Um, uh, some of them are very extensive, but they don't give you much in terms of the background or the history. So at that point, I was like, well, well I want to know the history. So, I, you know, I started searching the Internet or, you know, the, the, my library of books to see if there's anything about that. You know, basic sources like, you know, encyclopedias. And I learned about Isabel on a, on a service level. Um, I just kept getting drawn into that, you know, and jumping from a place of United States collecting where everything really is known and there's great resources in terms of books and such. 
um, to something where, other than a list of the denominations and coins that were made, there's really no background history written uh, about the coins of Isabella. And that's really what kind of drew me into collecting it. And then I started the book really as just a list of the coins that I wanted, and that got into a list of all the coins that were because it was so confusing with the many different uh, monetary systems that she had in just a short period. And, you know, next thing you knew, no, I had a bunch of tables and, and some paragraphs in my notes about, uh, you know, when this came about and why they did, you know, issued this coin series. So uh, that the book came out of that, and I, I just pursued it, you know, as I do often with my research with a passion. So I think you and I are kindred spirits in that regard. I started collecting a series of modern world coins and medals, of which uh, literally nothing was written about. It took me quite a long time to realize the complexity of the series. Uh, and then, you know, as far as world coins go, I think uh, ju just the way that we approach Numismatic Scholarship is, is way different than uh, how our European and Asian colleagues do. Yeah, I think it's just a familiarity with what's available. Um, I think to some degree in the United States, we are, uh, we are certainly uh, fortunate that there are so many repositories of knowledge, the National Archives, and of course the American Numismatic Association and the American Numismatic Society. Um, and in Spain, there are resources, but they're, you know, it's, it's more, uh, colloquial. You know, you, you need to know this person who knows that person who has this library or saw that book or, you know, has some, has touched upon, done their own research in some vein of what you're looking at. And so that's part of why I, I, I really, as you might do for any research, of a subject. I started with what the literature did have. And that was a good bit. I mean, Dossi, um, in his uh, large compendium of volumes, has a lot in, uh, in about Isabel and the period. So that was probably the closest to contemporary that I could get other than the actual source documents from the National Archives of Spain in Madrid, uh, who do have some of their, their literature online. Um, so that's, you know, when I include in the book the actual royal decrees for each of the monetary systems that were uh, created. I have the source for a lot of that. And a lot of other documents you just have to find, you know, either from people who have searched the other archives that aren't online um, or, you know, resources. Believe it or not, Google has some of those rare and hard to find or you think you'd never find them, uh, pieces of, of documents from Spain and elsewhere. The real obstacle then um, is, is the language. Um, I'm fortunate that I can uh, read Spanish. Um, so I, and it, it's numismatically, there's a little more to learn because some of those terms are used in ways that you don't think about until you approach them from a numismatic perspective. But after picking those things up, it, it, it's picked up speed and steam. And as I learned more, it built on a foundation. And I find that enjoyable. I like building a foundation of knowledge and learning more from there. So uh, it is it is a challenge, and I guess that initially, while it was frustrating, um, it quickly became just joy-filled uh, search for knowledge and uh, putting that in a book. Uh, as I say, initially, just for my own edification, uh, soon became quite the passion. Let, let me ask you a, a superficial question uh, about the portraiture of Queen Isabel II. You know, which uh, you know may, maybe is not advisable. Uh, given contemporary uh, gender politics. Um, but how would you describe the evolution 
of the portraiture of the queen uh, throughout her reign. Uh, you know, when, when you think of the great women on coins, you, you see them mature from young, almost glamorous portraits to strong, stately, matronly figures. Do the Isabella II coins follow uh, this path? Because, you know, in my mind, when I, when I think about her coinage, I think about this pouty, matronly figure, you know. Uh, so was there a period uh, in her coin portraiture where Isabella II was cast in a more flattering way? Yeah, I, I know precisely what you mean. If, as it progresses from the earliest coins, which, which use what I call the, the pearl bun head type, um, and then to another intermediate uh, portrait um, that has a Luke braid, to the final series that has the Laureate and Drake Laureate bust. Uh, I would say it kind of progresses there. In part, if you look at the, which I also have in the book, but if you look at the the painting-type portraiture that was available from the period and then combined with biographies that have some descriptions, she was uh, not unattractive um, in her younger years um, and I think the issue initially and what you see and depends on everyone's uh, assessment of beauty, as they say, is always in the eye of the beholder. But in my estimation, I think it was a combination of the engraver's skill at depicting and to some degree the how precisely faithful they felt they needed to be to portraying them, as, it, as I'm sure you, you may understand that um, generally, they wanted to be as faithful as they could be to show the ruler so that people would recognize them if they saw them. But in this case, in my opinion, the artistry of the pearl button head is limited by the engraver um, who did those. Mariano Gonzalez Sepulveda designed those, and he was a very skilled uh, machinist who actually developed the modern methods of uh, hubbing and using the new uh, types of minting presses. So I, I want to credit him that with that, I should certainly do in the book, but I, I don't find his artistry of the Pearl Van Head as appealing as the much later designs by Luis Marchione. Um, and then in the intermediate period, of course, you had uh, Vega, uh, Remigio Vega, also a capable engraver. Um, I think he was trying to portray her as she appeared. She did wear hairstyles that matched all of these. I think the issue was just how artful and how much liberty the artists took with their design. I think Luis Marcioni is just a very skilled artist, and he took some liberties perhaps, although he did faithfully portray, for example, her chin in some of those. Um, but the design, the, the embellishment that he used in the hair and just the lines that are more of a moving towards a classical or art nouveau as opposed to a simple presentation is just so much more appealing, um, which is often, I think, why some of the later period pieces from the second and third decimal period are, are so sought after. Yeah, you know, I think it's also worthy of note. You know, the people's ideas have evolved dramatically over the years. Uh, in terms of how we perceive beauty, you know, especially, you know, since the period of time when these coins are struck. I, I think I've only ever had one coin of hers uh, throughout my years of collecting, and, and that was a uh, 
100 reales from uh, 1860, 1861, you know, that period. And, and I think, you know, at the time I got it, I thought, well, this is a very nice portrait of her, uh, not very far removed from the look of uh, maybe the U.S. Drape Bust Liberty coins that were made about 60 years earlier. So, yes, I mean, she does cut a very matronly and stately appearance on, on all of the coins of her that I've seen her handle. Yes, yes, and I, I think uh, I have an appreciation for that. Um, I, I would, I would at no time, um, you know, classify her as you know one in one view or the other. But I think the artistry on the coins, you know, the, the things that as is often the case in, in historically looking back that we see, uh, contributed greatly to that. In other words, what the engraver did or chose to do and was. Uh, in the case of Lise Marcioni, certainly approved of by the Queen to do, uh, you know, embellishes what we see and, and how we view, you know, the ruler, at least from a, a visual standpoint. So, again, I think that's related to the combination of art and history. So, clearly, the Spain that Isabel II ruled was a far cry from the Spain that produced the pillar dollar. You know, what what monetary changes were taking effect in Spain at the time. And how diminished was this Spanish economy from where it was, you know, 100 or 200 years before? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. The, uh, the kingdom or the dominion of Spain stretched the whole world, much of North and South America and islands and, and throughout the world. Uh, it was a huge... Uh, a huge dominion, and of course the silver and gold that they got from many of those colonies was uh, very welcomed by the rulers who didn't have to worry too much about the finances for a long time. The silver pillar dollars that all of us are are, aware, are familiar with and bust dollars that they made uh, flowed out of the colonies, and the silver sources for that uh, were plentiful. However, when the revolutions began and, and those colonies became independent uh, steadily, one after the other, in the early 1800s, which was just before Isabel became queen, they were it was a much different situation, obviously. Um, potential uh, financial ruin for the economy and the country were always uh, on their doorstep, and the uh, ministers who under Isabella had constantly had to deal with that. Um, they eventually got a tax reform that helped them some, um, but it was a very tumultuous time, both from an economic standpoint for everyday Spaniards and uh, certainly for those managing the government. Um, this is combined, of course, with at the same time the contention between Isabel, or rather her mother at the time, who was acting on her behalf, uh, and the uh, brother of Fernando VII, who was the former king, um, his brother Carlos, who claimed to be king, and those in the areas of the country that preferred to have a male heir to become king. Um, that started the Carlist Wars. So you had wars, you had a bad economy to start with, and then you had to fund wars with a bad economy. So it was it was quite a mess, frankly. And that combined with those shortages of, of silver, in particular, that I mentioned, uh, resulted in a situation where the silver coinage, particularly the larger coins of Isabel's period and before, were being exported 
by uh, by people to other countries in Europe, uh, France, Germany, England, and elsewhere uh, to melt them because even toward the beginning of the century, um, the the weight, the actual silver content in a silver, large silver coin that was equivalent in size and buying power on the street to a French five franc, um, the weight of the Spanish coins was more in terms of the silver content. Um, so that quickly became a, uh, Russian's law kicked in, quickly became a source of greater concern for those of the mint, at least, those who were directly concerned with supplying the, the monetary tools for the economy. And that really quickly turned into a flood going out of the country of their Spanish uh, silver, despite doing no less than four different reforms during Isabel's short 25-year reign. They continued to flow out of the country because, for some reason, although they did some make some adjustments to the smaller silver coins, the large silver coins, um, perhaps just for for national pride, they left at a, a, a higher weight. They progressively reduced the silver content or weight uh, relative to the French five franc, but they never reached parity until after her reign, and that just continued to create a situation where. There was really never a, a sufficient supply of coins in the country, and throughout her reign, they continued to use French uh, and English coins as in everyday commerce. So they were dealing with a total of five Spanish, about 1860s, five Spanish monetary systems in terms of the coinage and circulation, plus those of other countries to do everyday transactions. You know that that's an amazing decline when you consider that the the pillar dollar essentially circulated in Asia, throughout the Americas, and uh, it was legal tender of the United States until 1857. And here you have the country that strikes those coins having to rely on foreign coins to prop up its monetary system. You know, that, that's a shocking collapse. Yeah, and some of that's also influenced by the fact that France invaded uh, early, you know, just before her reign, you know, 1810 or whatever it was, but um, that period where the French French controlled it contributed, ironically, to some of the stability that they had in the monetary system. They made a transition from having these escudos and reales and maravedis to the idea that you could have just one unit. You know, like we have dollars today, everything's based on one the dollar unit. They had at least three units. Um, that they had to multiply odd numbers to get to, uh, whereas the French, one of the things they contributed was that they, uh, the idea of having a, a single monetary unit, uh, since the French had already established not only a single unit, but a metric method of, of uh, money. Uh, that was a help, I think, but it took some time before uh, Spain took up the metric system, both for everyday commerce and for their coinage. And, 1848 was the first attempt, but there was, as, as um, anyone who's looked through our Krauss catalog to try and figure out which one there is in Bell's coin, certainly when you go through this book that I've uh, published now, you'll see that there's many attempts to try and refine what they consider to be a good metric system of coinage. Obviously, you know, with all the these struck coins leaving the country, where was Spain sourcing their silver and gold from? I mean, were they still sourcing gold and silver from the Western Hemisphere, or were they relying mostly on deposits being sourced from within their own country? 
There were uh, one major uh, deposit in Spain, uh, but still that wasn't quite enough. So they, one of the things they wrestled with in the, um, you know, many of the decrees that, that I found for, for this period was getting people to bring silver to them. And, you know, on top of putting too much silver into some of their coins, they didn't really initially pay enough for silver to be brought to them to mint into coins. So there's a constant struggle to increase that amount that they would pay so they could get silver to put into coinage. And uh, it just it was a constant struggle, though. And did the Spanish resort uh, to the circulation of paper money during this period, you know, to make up for the uh, the shortfall? Actually, it's, a, it's an odd thing uh, at no time, you know, we, we've had in the U.S. and the French in particular had issues with paper money becoming so inflated and, and becoming worthless in cases because backers couldn't pay when people demanded their money. Um, there was a caution there that might have been actually too cautious on the part of Spain. They limited that, and in fact, it was mostly banks that issued them, so there wasn't uh, national currency during her period, as we think of today. It was sometime after when the SATA was established. Uh, but they did have paper, but it was more like certificates that a bank might issue. Uh, and they didn't have a proportion that was very high. So in other words, the amount of coinage they had versus the amount of paper in the U.S. and in France, the paper was you know, hundreds of times as much paper as it was a uh, specie of gold and silver. Whereas in Spain, it was only maybe three or four times, and, and that was generally bank issues. So the what they did, actually, is they had a fair supply of gold, and the gold markets got flooded during the early in this period, the mid-period, 1840s, 1850s, with the discovery of gold in, in California, of course, and in Australia. And so the gold markets actually had something of a glut. So they had ready access to gold, which is why they made a relatively good number of gold pieces as the uh, her reign progressed. So they offset that with gold. And it's actually why, although most people may have dealt with Isabel's coin, they're very familiar with the 100 reals and the subsequent 10 escudos of the same size and weight, um, the 20 and 40 reales were made out of gold in response to the fact that they couldn't get enough silver to make the 20 reals larger silver coins. So they, they in short, or the answer to your question is rather resorting to paper, they resorted to gold. Seems to me that when you think about it in a contemporary context, knowing what the price of silver and gold is today, I wonder if uh, some of these economies, as they got through the Industrial Revolution, especially for countries for whom the maintenance costs of running the state had drastically increased, whether the reliance on metal as money and being reliant on its availability was in a major way a constricting factor. And if you had a country that had difficulty in sourcing metal, then there was a limit hardwired into the structure of that economy. That's absolutely the case. And in fact, uh, it's, the, it's the prime case made by a study that was one of the, the literature sources I found uh, related to that ratio of paper to coin, and by not ex not allowing for a quick expansion through through lending and paper issues, they limited severely the uh, rate at which the economy could expand. 
Um, fortunately, in 1845, they did have a tax reform that obviously many people disliked, but it provided them funds to do things like the uh, the public works for the Canal de Isabel II, uh, Canal de Isabel II, they call it to this day, it's still there, and it's a, a long pipeline uh, that brought water to Madrid, uh, which had long had a sore shortage of water. Similarly, there was a huge railroad expansion in that period. Uh, the, the irony is that much of the all of the funds flowed into Spain, both for the infrastructure itself and you know, hiring of labor and so forth. Many of those uh, entrepreneurs were either in the, the leads leaders themselves or in, in often the funders for the Spanish partners that they had were from other countries. And in part, that was intentional since Spain was struggling. They did want to advance the ministers, despite all the the mess that was going on uh, politically at that time, really struggled and really did a good job, I think, to try and get uh, funding for projects and advancement of Spain. And the railroads and the... uh, the water pipeline are two major uh, public works that enhanced Spain's ability to con- compete, although they were still far behind for several decades. What precipitated uh, the end of Queen Isabel II's reign, and what were her final issued coins? Uh, I think it's really when we look at the politics of this whole thing, uh, Queen Isabel, although remembered by many and known at the time as a kindly person, was spoiled and not well-educated by her mother. And that that certainly was telling in her reign. So she would switch sides uh, on a whim uh, just to please someone or not have conflicts with someone. And then for unknown reasons, in some cases, she would just stand on on one side of an issue and never move. Uh, so there was just an intransigence and then a, a flip-flop of what she would do. There's a great deal of chaos, but as I, I point out, I think, in the end of the summary for her reign, although she and her mother were not good leaders by any means, I think the real issue and the real source of trouble during the uh, entire period of her reign was due to this factionalism that arose in the country of hyper-conservative and hyper-liberals and another couple of factions in between that just could never, ever agree on anything. And as a result, it it just caused deadlock, and it literally contributed to the suffering of the Spanish people, um, the wars, the Carlos Wars. Um, So poverty, hunger, death, all were uh, found at the source of their cause a... uh, just an intransigence of the different factions to ever meet eye to eye on anything. And I think that more than anything contributed to the political situation in which Isabel found herself. I don't think she certainly did any much to help that situation because of her poor education and, and, uh, you know, upbringing. Uh, but, uh, on the whole, I, I would point out, I've heard in other books her mentioned as a cruel queen and that's just not the case. She, she went so far as to pardon people who tried to assassinate her. So she was a kindly person. She just wasn't a very well-educated or very well-prepared person for the uh, immense responsibility that she had. And that combined with the 
the terrible factionalism of the country um, ultimately resulted in a situation where the factions decided that she was the cause of much of it, which she was, um, and they finally ousted her in 1868. Um, as far as the final issues, um, just to give you a quick summary, they had Maravedis, which were copper in the early years, um, the kingdom period, which is very similar to those periods uh, preceding her reign. They just kind of picked up where they left off at Maravedis and Reales um, for copper and then the silver and gold. And then they uh, transitioned to the, the first decimal period in 1848. Um, they had a new copper that was based on uh, tenths decima. And then they had uh, silver reales and, and gold reales. And then likewise, they continued with that and had some changes in 1854 to go more to a hundreds based, like the French metric system for their coinage for the copper. And then the final one, they, they decided, hey, we got to start all over again. 1864, the Latin Monetary Union was being discussed, um, although it wasn't officially established, I don't think, for another year after that by the French. And uh, they were uh, partner countries uh, in that effort. But in 1864, Spain decided to change the, the base unit from reales to escudos, which again is confusing because many people know escudos as the gold unit that was separate from silver decades earlier. But now it became the base unit in 1864, and for just four short years, 1864 through 68, they issued uh, copper, silver, and gold based on the escudo. So that's kind of a summary of, of the, the four major uh, monetary periods in her 25 years. And of the Isabella II coins, you know, there are scarcer issues and uh, coins that will be a challenge for collectors to acquire. But most of the coins are more or less affordable to the collector who can afford to buy gold-type coins. Yeah, they really are. And that's another aspect, frankly, of why I, I transitioned to world coins is that you can find coins that are, that are much more scarce uh, than the U.S. counterparts for fractions of the price. Um, so that's definitely a factor. One other thing I would point out is that, as I do in the book, for each individual uh, issue, as in the United States where PCHS and GC will grade coins, they'll, they'll market grade them. So, for example, a Gobrecht dollar um, or an early period piece from the 1700s of the U.S., they might give a little more wiggle room on something that has some... Uh, some harsh cleaning, and they'll straight grade that coin uh, because they know how hard it is to find nice. And I'm looking forward to a period where uh, I think the collectors know because it's reflected in the prices for some of these coins at auction, but the, the third-party graders don't seem to yet understand which of those coins are which uh, for Isabel or other world coins for that matter. So, for example, as we discussed today, the silver coins, particularly the larger silver coins uh, of, of Isabel's period throughout her reign, are really hard to find at all um, in grades above uh, XS. So, you know, if you talk about a coin that's that's pleasing to the eye, certainly, but yes, it may have some hairlines in the fields, collectors are not going to 
consider that to be a problem coin if it's a 20 reales or two escudos silver piece because you just can't find them. <laughs> I mean, a, a gem uncirculated MS65 uh, 20 reales, I don't think I've, I've ever seen one. I've seen one proof uh, that was immaculate except for a mark on the, on in the center. Um, but you just don't see those. So collectors will often buy the 20 reales coins in what PCGS or NGC currently might categorize as cleaned or, you know, details grade. Uh, but if it's a nice extra fine, it's got pleasing appearance, uh, then the hairlines really aren't a factor. Um, in fact, one of the coins in my collection has some unfortunate scratches um, right at the rim uh, at 12 o'clock on the reverse. But it's otherwise a, a very pleasing 20 reales uh, in silver. It's just very hard to come by. So collectors, of the, as they specialize in any series, they recognize those types of things where certain coins may just not be available in a gem straight grade um, what would generally be considered a straight grade. So either market grading or certainly the familiarity of collectors with the this, this specialized area uh, is, a, is a factor to consider. Um, and it's primarily based on the history that we've discussed today, the silver that just wasn't available. So large silver coins got melted. And that was also true for the smaller coins, but to a lesser extent. So those are the types of things that influence the pricing and the rarity of Isabel's coins in particular. But as you point out, certainly for the, the later copper coins of the, the Centimos de Escudo uh, and even the Reales, and uh, to some extent the Maravedis, you can find those in circulated grades quite readily and uh, in uncirculated grades with a little more cost, but certainly less than you might for a, uh, a similarly high-quality U.S. coin of the same period. You know, one of the things I think about, you know, when I read your book and I, and I consider uh, world coinage, uh, and it's something I'm sure you're familiar with as a world coin collector, uh, and for me, honestly, it's it's a point of frustration, is uh, the way European collectors have cared for and treated their coins versus the way American collectors treat and preserve uh, coins. It's It's a much different culture. And even if you go to like a European auction lot viewing, and let's say you have like a, a really choice proof coin, and you're the first person to view that lot, uh, and, and at that point you decide you want to bid on it, you probably have to go back and view it again at the end before the auction goes down because there's always a possibility that the coin has changed its state of preservation due to careless handling, uh, even from professional uh, collectors and dealers. And I think even though the American grading service have not had what amounts to a huge degree of success penetrating the European market, I tell my European friends and dealers that these services are essential, whether you agree with the grade or not, uh, for the long-term preservation of these coins, uh, especially high-end and important coins. And uh, if you don't protect these coins, then you're basically limiting the long-term viability of your coin market. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I know it's a, a contentious issue to there are certainly people that prefer to have the coins out, particularly for ancients um, or for circulated coins. I agree. I mean, metrology and, and the weights, diameters, thicknesses um, that are that are recorded in the book are generally taken from firsthand, you know, handling of the coins. But when I have it, you have a gem uh, piece, particularly that's rare in that quality. I honestly, I'm with you. I like to to get it something that's going to preserve it uh, in that condition. 
Um, I'm less concerned about something that's circulated, uh, but it's nice to handle the coins. But I agree with you that there is, I think, much of what we have remaining of Isabel's coins is the result of a different perspective, um, no, none less than the other, but different from the perspective we may have here for some of the U.S. coins uh, and, and collecting them. Um, so that's probably part of why there's so few gem silver pieces of Isabel's there is a combination of that uh, that melting and export situation and uh, just the, the handling that many collectors had for them. But to be fair, there are there are a number of gems of certain pieces, gold, uh, copper, and there's a handful of silver ones, um, particularly of the, the smaller denominations, um, that are available. It's just that in general, these the initial scarcity based on the melting and the combined with the, I think, as you say, a, a European as a, on a whole uh, approach to collecting that's different than the U.S. collecting has been here for some time. Well, Patrick O'Connor's book is titled The Coins of Queen Isabella II of Spain, a detailed study. It's available through Colby and Fanning on their website, www.numislit.com, and the price of the book is $135. It's well worth it. It includes beautiful illustrations of the coins. It's an exhaustive reference and a great entry point for any collector that seeks to spread their wings and go beyond the American series. I encourage any collector who wants to get a more sophisticated understanding of numismatics on a budget to take that leap and get into world coins. In many cases, these coins are much scarcer than their American counterparts and are still available at prices that will not break the bank. Pat, I appreciate that you uh, took the time today to talk to me about these coins and the time and place in which they were made. Thank you, Charles. A genuine pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And remember, you can download all 85 episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes store. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, 